Good afternoon. My name is Emma, and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the 8th Call and Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies series of election prognostications and insights. Our call today will be moderated by Blake Rutherford, a member of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies. Our speakers this afternoon are Howard Schweitzer, Managing Partner of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, and Mark Alderman, Chairman of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies. Later, we will be joined by Bernard Nash and Lori Kalani, co-chairs of Cozen O'Connor's State Attorney's General Practice. As a reminder, this call is being recorded Tuesday, May 24, 2016. All phone lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. If you have questions during the call, submit them via email to presidentialanalysis at cozen.com. Blake Rutherford, you may begin your conference. Thank you very much. Welcome, everyone, to uh, the eighth call in our Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies series on the 2016 elections. As always, I am joined by my colleagues, Mark Alderman, the CEO of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, and Howard Schweitzer, the managing partner of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies. Mark, Howard, welcome back. Thanks. Um, an interesting call today. We're going to spend um, a, a healthy amount of time, as we always do, talking about the presidential election, but then we're going to pivot. We're going to pivot to state races, which we have talked about some. Certainly, we've examined, examined the Senate. We've taken a look at governor's races. Today, we're going to look at state AG races. So we're going to be joined by the co-chairs of our firm's state attorney's general practice, Lori Kalani and Bernie Nash. So looking forward to that as well. Uh, but Mark and Howard, let's get right to it. Um, I say it as I begin every, every one of these calls, this is not a dull race. And for the first time, I think in a few sessions, the Democrats are making it not a dull race. It's our turn. Uh, it's our turn, Mark. Right. Uh, so I am going to start with you. I'm and just going to sit back and Yeah, you're just going to hang out, Howard? Yeah, you should. Absolutely. Relax for a little bit. We'll get to you. All right. We'll get to you. Um, but, Mark, I want to talk about Bernie Sanders. And I want to talk about the events in Nevada and what we're beginning to see, at least from my vantage point, which is a Sanders campaign that, at least optically, is not winding down. Um, but I want to get your general reactions to the events in Nevada. What significance do you give to any of that? And for our listeners, this was state convention picking delegates and there was some disruption um, inside the uh, inside the event with some pretty nasty public commentary uh, after the fact including to the head of the Democratic Party in Nevada um, death threats and other sort of hateful language on Twitter um, and whether or not there was a relationship between that and the Sanders campaign uh, so that's context and background but Mark I want to start with Bernie and just get your general reactions to Nevada. Well, Blake, Nevada was no fun for the Democrats. It looked bad, and it was covered wall to wall as everything is in the modern world. However, having said all of that, I think it's very important to remember that we have had on our side 40-some contests. We have had disruption in one state. And Tip O'Neill, of course, said all politics is local. So was what happened in Nevada to a great degree. There was no love between the Sanders and Clinton supporters in Nevada. That hasn't happened elsewhere and uh, it, it certainly won't as we play out the primary season. So I see that as an outlier. I, I don't think that portends anything for Philadelphia. But and, and I want to I want to get to that. I want to I want to certainly get to the to the Democratic National Convention. But we're seeing with Bernie a desire to amplify his rhetoric, um, a focus on seeing this all the way through, um, but also not really letting up, not letting up on Hillary Clinton, not letting up on the Democratic Party in terms of his, his 
argument that this is a corrupt process, that it has been unfair to him, um, and that in some form or fashion his voters have been denied some opportunity. Um, what do you make of that, Mark? Is it theatrics? Is it Bernie um, just managing his base, or is it something more severe? I think it's theatrics. I think it is Bernie managing his base. I think that it is mostly the last few weeks of a long and contested primary season Deja vu all over again. We saw this in 2008 with then-Senator Obama and then-Senator Clinton. And I think what will matter is what happens next. I don't think that what happens between now and California is that consequential. I think because on the other side... There has been a lot less commotion that the attention has turned to our side. But it's going to be legacy time for Bernie in a couple of weeks. If he fights this through California and then does what Hillary did eight years ago, which is endorse, withdraw, and endorse, then all of the hard feelings are going to be forgotten. If he doesn't and he might not then we're going to have to see how far that goes but he does not want to be remembered as the man who gave America President Trump he has said that again and again and again as recently as yesterday and I think we're going to see this whole thing calming way down once we clear California I think Howard, I, want, yeah. I want in on this. Please. I think I think you're probably right at the end of the day that that things settle down. He doesn't want to see President Trump. But it's fundamentally not the Democratic Party that Bernie has has moved and and spoken to and and gotten votes from in this election season. It it's independence. And I mean, Mark, you know better than any of us that whoever wins the independence wins this election, especially yeah. this election yeah. in, in November. And Hillary has crushed Bernie among Democrats, and Bernie has crushed her among independents. Hillary's got to find a way at the end of the day to get those people their independence. They're not going to pull the lever because... Yeah, I mean, I mean, okay. So let me let me come back to that because I because I want to talk about whether or not we've got cause for concern, right? We've got a new Wall Street Journal NBC News poll out that shows, and I know you guys are going to tell me I give no credence to the polling, but here are a couple of stats that I do think matter. The first of which is 66% of Bernie Sanders supporters say they'll vote for Hillary. All right, contextually, 88% of Hillary supporters said they'd vote for Bernie. 2008, the number at this stage in the game, 60% of Hillary supporters voting for, for Obama, right? So, so a bit of, basically the same number. Um, let's start there. Does, does any of that, if you're analyzing this from the context of the Clinton campaign, give you any pause? A- absolutely. Absolutely. As it gave the Obama campaign pause at this same point in 2008. But Howard is absolutely right. The election is always decided by independents. It's actually decided by independents who are 10, 15, 20 percent of the electorate in eight, nine, ten states. So that is where the battleground will be, and that is where Hillary should be concerned, and I'm, I'm sure is, but that's not because of the bad things Bernie's saying about her today. Today, if that's still happening, come the convention and the fall, 
that is going to hurt her in that critical independence space. But she is underwater among Sanders supporters. Her favorable, unfavorable among Sanders supporters is 38-41. So, I mean, she's got a challenge, right? I mean, we she's underwater nationally. Well, well, but if we're talking about consolidating a coalition that brings in the independent Bernie voter, because, Howard, we're going to come back to whether or not there's an avenue for Trump to poach some of those Bernie voters. And, Mark, you, you made the declaration yeah. here. You talked about it and, and in, a, in some thoughtful commentary in U.S. News and World Report, which you can find um, uh, on our website, about Bernie not wanting his legacy to be electing Trump. But be that as it may, his supporters are going to have a choice to make, Howard. And what I, mm-hmm. what I keep coming back to and what I keep thinking about in this particular dynamic is the enthusiasm gap between Bernie Sanders supporters looking to Hillary mm-hmm. versus Hillary supporters looking to Bernie Sanders. And there's a gap there, Howard, and, and Sanders supporters just do not appear to be as enthusiastic. Now, we will all take comfort, the Democrats will, in the 2008 statistic that there is, you can still win handily a general election if a Memorial Day weekend your opponent supporters just are still not that fired up about you. But because of all the negatives and because of all the other challenges that we've, you've talked about with Hillary, is there something more that we really need to be thinking about here? Well, it's, it's this, it, first and foremost, it's this point about independence. Because I, don't, I don't know offhand what number in 2008 um, represented independence as far as the 60% is concerned, but my guess is it's a lot different than it looks today. And, and therein lies the rub. I, you know, people want change. People vote for change. Find me a voter who says, I'm going to vote for the status quo, that's fundamentally that Hillary's problem. And look, I think there are millions and millions and millions of people, tens of millions of people who are going to pull the lever for her because they rationalize that she isn't going to run the country into the ground and they're concerned about other people running the country into the ground. But that's one of my friends says you always want to run to something, not from something. She hasn't articulated a vision at this point of what people should run to. She's only articulating a vision of what people should run from, and that's what has to happen to get this where it needs to be for her. Is that right, Mark? Do you agree that, that this is about a run-to election? I mean, certainly we continue to hear that this is going to be a vote against election, and the votes count the same, whatever your motivation is into the polling place. I think what Howard said is largely right, not entirely. It's largely right in the sense that she needs to do exactly what Howard said. She needs to give people a reason to run to her because she needs turnout. This, most elections are very different than this election is going to be. We've already seen that. But most elections have a persuasion piece and a turnout piece. First you convince somebody to be for you, then you convince them to come to the polls. This is going to be much more about turnout. I think that the people who are for Trump are going to come out to vote. Every single person for Trump is going to come out to vote. I don't think that's as true on our side. And I think that Secretary Clinton's challenge is to motivate her voters enough that each and every one of them comes out to vote. And that is the running two point that that Howard makes. Although, having said all of that, a lot of Trump's voters are voting against Hillary and a lot of her voters are voting against Trump. And I just think that is a heavier proportion than in, in past elections. I want to talk about California because it's it, it really, it's not where the Democrats 
finish up. They finish up in the District of Columbia, but it is the biggest prize left left on the map. And it's where Bernie Sanders really is sort of making his final effort. Um, and I wanted to get both of your perspectives on sort of the magnitude of California in the context of, of it being the largest piece of the Democratic delegate pie and also for all intents and purposes. Like I said, we'll talk about the District of Columbia, but really it being at the very end. Um, what does that result need to look like for Hillary Clinton? It's not going to matter in terms of delegates because she's going to wrap this thing up earlier that night, probably in New Jersey when those polls close. But, um, but from, from a symbolic point of view, Mark, what does California need to look like? She needs to win. It would be really good for her to win. I think she will. It would be really bad for her not to because it would symbolically seal the season with a loss. It would symbolically leave Bernie on the pedestal that a lot of people have have put him on. She she should win. I think she will win, but it would be really good for her to win that. One of the things that's happening, just as a footnote to California, to date, Bernie Sanders has bought $400,000 of airtime, which is invisible. It, it's the same thing as saying... He's not going to be on television in California. Despite the extraordinary fundraising machine he built, he is out of money. He is firing staff. He's not going to be on TV. His campaign is not yet winding down rhetorically, but it is limping to California on the money and staff front. And he might win. Now, it might not matter. That's right. <laughs> right. It might not matter. And Just as Trump did no television right. and had no staff and won everything in sight. Yeah, right. I mean, it's funny. I was, gonna, I was just going to uh, let all of our listeners know from the money game when you talk about him being out of money. Cash on hand, last report, Hillary had $30 million in the bank. Bernie had $5 million in the bank. Um, and, you know, it's funny when you lay those numbers against Trump, it looks quite different because he doesn't have – a whole lot of money yet either, but but Howard, I, I do want to I, I do want to get your thoughts and reactions to California. Mark makes a very interesting point about ending with a loss. Um, how how much how much do you think that that hurts Hillary Clinton going into convention season um, if California didn't break her way? And conversely, if it's a big victory, does that does that put any wind in her sail? Yeah, I mean, this race hasn't been about math for the last sixty days, right? So, it, as, as you both said, it's not about delegates, because that's done. It is about the narrative, though. And um, win, lose, or draw, they have got to take a page from the Republicans' book, quite frankly, and, and craft a narrative about bringing the party together. That is what's missing here. Love him or hate him, Reince Priebus did a masterful job of orchestrating the, quote, unification of the Republican Party, perception-wise. There's no um, question that Lindsey Graham feels the same way about Donald Trump today than he, as he did two months ago. But to John Q. Citizen, it doesn't necessarily look like that. And um, hopefully for Hillary's um, sake, the Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who thus far I don't think has particularly distinguished herself as far as being the puppeteer um, in the background. I mean, they've got to be working on this in a big way. Mark, let's. I mean, that's it's a nice segue to the convention and what and what all this looks like. But before we get there, I mean. It, is it, it may be too much inside baseball. I think I know what you're going to tell me, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Bernie Sanders has come out. He's endorsed Debbie Wasserman Schultz's opponent um, in in this race. What do you what do you what significance well, do you attach to that? So a, a couple of things. First, the uh, preface, and then the point. Uh, we know Debbie. We know her well. 
she's a friend and I'm a fan. However, having said that, she has plainly been partisan. She has been for Hillary from the first, and that has leaked into her handling of the DNC. And Bernie has a point that the system was set up for Hillary to win, set up by Debbie for Hillary. It did not change the result. Let's be very clear about that. However, he's mad, and and I get it, and he's mad at Debbie about that more than at Hillary. Debbie's going to win her race. Bernie endorsing her opponent is symbolic again, and it raised a little money for the other guy. But Hillary won that district by 60 points. 60 points she won that district. Debbie will win her race, but I completely concur with Howard. Reese, whatever his, Priebus, whatever his name is, he did it. He he managed not to be partisan and to pull it together, and our chairwoman has, has yet to accomplish that. Mark, she is your friend, actually, bona fide friend, and you sound like she's your friend. Um, That's what I said. <laughs> right. That's what look, I said. We, we've all been in these rooms. Politics require it's theatrics. It requires a deft touch. It requires um, gaming out every every little action and every spoken word and every moment. And this Nevada thing with throwing chairs and all the mayhem, I mean, you don't go on CNN the next day and without speaking to Bernie and trash the guy. That's not how you bring a party together. That is not... What Debbie, Debbie Wasserman Schultz did. 100% agree. And Notwithstanding friendship, she, that was wrong. That was exactly backwards of what she should be doing. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just, it requires a, delic, a delicacy and a, a delicate touch that they better find it in the next 30 days or then they're in real trouble. Yeah, I mean, okay, so so as we pivot to to our convention in Philadelphia, Mark, I want to I want to touch on a couple of things that that we've seen. One of which is Bernie Sanders coming out and saying, and I quote, we're going to have a messy convention. Now, what he means by messy is we're going to have a convention that's full of rig- vigorous debate. It's how he it's how he characterized messy. But then we saw that the platform committee um, has, first of all, the allocations were made, and Bernie got five members of the platform committee. Uh, Hillary got six, and then Debbie Washington Schultz got four. And they've named their platform committee right. members. What do you make of that dynamic? So this is deep inside right. baseball, but to Howard's point that the Democrats, we better get it together over the next six weeks or however many are are left until our convention. That was, I think, and I hope, the beginning of coming together. Ordinarily, and this is exactly what was happening until Friday, Debbie, as the chairwoman, would have appointed that committee. And the party would have accepted her appointments. What happened instead is that the Clinton campaign intervened, negotiated a compromise that gave Bernie his recognition that Senator Sanders said he was very satisfied with and completely endorsed, and Hillary fundamentally replaced Debbie in picking that committee, And I think that is the template for what's going to happen with the party from here on in. She, post-California, will be the nominee, presumptive and otherwise, and she is going to run that convention, and she is going to make sure that in the platform committee selection, which again is deep inside baseball, and all the rest of the run-up to the convention, that uh, that if Debbie isn't doing her job, Hillary's going to do it for her. 
Can I just make an observation? No. If you want to know why the selection is where it is, it's because it's so much more interesting to talk about Donald Trump than Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and Debbie Wasserman Schultz picking the platform committee. Agreed. Well, Agreed. So more interesting and more dangerous. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. here we go. All right. Yeah. Now, now, now to the fun. Probably stuff. be. Well, I'm not going to say. It. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But but I, my my last question about the convention. I mean I mean a couple of a couple of interesting things. You know we've got protesters are lining up. Um, they're securing their permits in in Philadelphia. We're going to have Bernie protests um, in Philadelphia. Um, the super delegate piece of this, Mark. Um, they have been with Hillary from the very be- very beginning. Um, any movement, any traction in in the superdelegate universe that you see um, Bernie Sanders gaining between now and no, when we, none. When we gavel in, none. None. Two things about the superdelegates: they were designed to be for Hillary, and they are and will be right through the convention. And other than symbolically, where. Bernie has a point that it's not the most democratic of processes. The superdelegates are irrelevant. Hillary is going to come to the convention with enough pledge delegates to win. She won. She got 3 million more votes. She got 300 more delegates. She got all the pledge delegates she needed to win. The superdelegates are a bad symbol as Bernie and I frankly see it. But they aren't picking the nominee, and they are not moving to Bernie. So that only leaves us with the vice presidential selection as sort of the last thing that the convention will will evolve. And we speculated on VP talk. I I don't think we necessarily have to do that here today. But I wanted to get your reaction to something that we have talked about before, the comment that Senator Harry Reid made in which he said, and I quote, hell no (laughs) to any Democratic senator in a state with a Republican governor joining the ticket. Howard, what do you make of that? Uh, I think he'd be crazy to say anything other than that. I mean, why? This is... That knocks... That puts Sherrod Brown, Elizabeth Warren, and Cory Booker in sort of off-limits to Harry Reid. Correct. If Harry yeah, Reid yeah. were picking the vice president, <laughs> that's correct. A uh, couple things about Harry Reid. Number one, we need his successor to be a Democrat, Bernie and Lori Noer, and they may say something about that a little later. I, I hope he's focused on Nevada, all politics being local, and not losing his seat. <laughs> Number two, he's actually not picking the vice president. Uh, Secretary Clinton is. But number three, and I'm sorry to to be inside baseball again, but there are very different laws in those three states. And yes, in each state, were Elizabeth Warren or Sherrod Brown or Cory Booker to be elected (coughs) Vice President of the United States, a Republican governor would appoint the successor. However, in Massachusetts, there would be a special election in 90 days. That was a law written when Ted Kennedy died, so Barack Obama would, would have his, his Democratic vote on health care, actually. And that, the republic will survive 90 days with <laughs> a, a Republican from Massachusetts. Why would you take the risk? I mean, all, thing, all else being equal, if you think... Picking Elizabeth Warren puts Hillary over the goal line. That you That's why you would take the risk. But history has shown that it won't and doesn't. And so well, why take the risk? History has shown that Donald Trump won't be the nominee of the Republican Party, except he is. Right. I mean, I mean, I, and I, mean, I would take a 90-day risk for Elizabeth Warren. She's my candidate. Yeah. But but I'm with Harry Reid. I don't get the pick. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. thank goodness. Her, yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Um, so, yeah, yeah Howard, Howard, Elizabeth Reid's also Howard's <laughs> Howard, let's pivot to but Trump. But not for vice president. No. <laughs> Howard, let's 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 pivot to Trump. Um, is, since the last time we did a call, he's up 7 points nationally. 
NBC News Wall Street Journal poll shows that among Republicans, he's up 86 to 6. That is a 7% surge as well. Um, big name Republican financiers have now come on board, Foster Freeze, Sheldon Adelson. Um, is Trump consolidating his party? I think the party's consolidating Trump more than Trump's consolidating the party. I mean, Blake, I could I could tell you that, yeah, it's national polling, not state-specific polling. I could tell you that it's registered voters, not likely voters. I could tell you that he's going to say something next week that's going to alienate a whole bunch of people. But I told you all that in January, so what's the point of telling you that? Um, he's clearly doing better um, from a polling perspective. I don't. I'm not paying much attention to to math today, but you know, undeniably, he's in a he's in a better position today than he was a couple of weeks ago. On the on the unification or consolidation point, my view is that the Republican Party, again, to to what I was saying earlier about kind of gaming this all out made the judgment that they need to give their House and Senate candidates some cover to not run away from, not have to run away from Trump, and that that's, this is air cover. And the party, Donald Trump didn't come to Washington last week and and suddenly win over people who despised him before. That's not how this works. The Republican Party decided they need air cover for their down-ballot candidates, and that's why they've gotten closer. But, he, but he, is, he is doing some things that are more conventional, right? I mean, he released a list of 11 judges that he would consider for the Supreme Court, certainly in an attempt to, to remind conservatives that he would put conservative jurists on the bench. He got the endorsement of the NRA, which is – which. I, I know you shrug it. Sh- of course, he got the but, endorsement of the NRA. Yeah. yeah, but he got the endorsement. But even still, this is not necessarily. Uh, uh, he says that teachers should have guns in classrooms. Of course, he got the endorsement of the NRA. So my my point is, respectfully to our moderator, he is. Well, I mean, I think if you if you look at the evolution of it on the position, but we're not going to endorse. Donald Trump has proven at every stage of this process since he came down that escalator and called Mexicans rapists and drug dealers, he has proven to be far more formidable than anybody expected. And he is doing a far more formidable job of pulling together the Republican Party behind him than I, for one, expected he would be able to do. But but he is not, again, without continued rhetorical challenge, Mark. I mean, and I'm not... It may feel like a little inside baseball, but his attacks on 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 Bob Gates being one, yep. flip flopping on the China China tariff hike being another, saying he'd meet with Kim Jong Un, um, and and his refusal to release his tax returns, and then yeah. we've got new stuff about Vince Foster. Um, you all wrote a very compelling op-ed in Fortune about his unpredictability. And I wonder, Howard, as you reflect on that op-ed and as you reflect on sort of Trump continuing to be Trump, uh, are we going to continue to to give pause to any of any of these rhetorical flourishes from the Donald, or are we gonna are we just going to keep marching forward? There are going to be plenty of people that are capable of being picked off that are potential supporters of his because he's going to continue to say things that um, people don't like hearing. Um, I think the taxes, I want to go back to the taxes, but um, he, we all know he will say and do things over the course of the next six months that um, make some people happy and makes other people very upset. I think there are um, um, some political forces out there um, the, the potential for a quote-unquote third-party run. I think we actually already have a third-party ticket out there, the libertarian ticket. Right. Gary Johnson um, and Bill Weld. And Bill Weld. 10% both, in a Fox poll. Right, both former governors that 
have a very appealing platform to a lot of the people that have supported or are thinking about supporting Donald Trump. They just don't know who these guys are yet. And by the way, also to people who are thinking about and supporting Bernie Sanders, to independent voters. I think there's that libertarian strain running through the electorate um, that, that could pick some of these guys off. On the taxes, this isn't about charitable giving or um, tax rate, effective tax rate or any of that rah-rah. If there's one thing, one thing and only one thing that's so wrapped up in Donald Trump's persona that he's worried about, I think, it's how much am I worth? Because from day one, the fundamental pillar of his campaign was, I'm a rich guy who's been super successful. That's what's in those tax returns. That's why he's not releasing them. That's something, if the pressure builds enough and he's actually got to put these things out, that could be something that takes one of the legs off the stool. Mark, any reaction to that? I agree. I think that he knows what's in there. We don't. He would have them out there in a heartbeat if they showed he's actually worth $10 billion. The fact that they aren't out there means there's something that he doesn't want the American people to see. I don't know what it is. But I'm with Howard. If it has to do with how much he's worth, that's a problem for him. I mean, but what is remarkable, if I may, and I know we're wrapping up, <laughs> this is the first of our eight calls where we talked more about Democrats than Republicans. <laughs> and when we talk about Republicans, all we talk about is Donald Trump. And that's the way it's going to be right through Election Day. This is Trump's election to win or lose, not because he's far ahead, which is what is often meant when someone says that, but every single day is about him. And he's either going to get enough people to the polls to pull the lever for him, or he's going to get enough people to the polls to pull the lever for Hillary. But her challenge is to crack into the debate. It's always all about him. He is a genius at controlling the news cycle, and I don't see that changing. Mark, one of our listeners texted me and wants me to call you out about your false statements about Donald Trump, but we don't have time for that, so I'll hold them until the next <laughs> let's time. Do, let's do our nice call. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, we, we, yeah, we are winding down. I want to, I want to invite he in a minute. He didn't say all teachers should have guns, just some teachers should have guns. <laughs> that's the correct It's in police and schools, not armed teachers or staff. Oh, that is not what the man said. Some teachers. All right, all right quote. Howard, um, as we wrap up this segment of our call, and before I invite um, Bernie Nash and Lori Kalani to join us to talk about state EG races, I, I did want to I, I sort of round out one thing. I know we're not giving a lot of, a lot of credence to the polls at this point, but we have seen Trump surging ahead nationally despite all of his rhetoric. Um, what do you? What I know that you're you're going to tell me. Look, polls don't matter this early, but we're seeing. But I think trends matter. Yeah. And we're seeing a trend for Trump. Do you think that trend is going to continue through the summer? I, I do. It, it, back to what I said earlier. Who wants the status quo? Um, I think there are some counter. There are some counterbalancing forces out there like President Obama's approval rating that, that matter um, a lot. Um, opinion of him is, is going up maybe because of who's out there running for President of the United States. Um, but people fundamentally always want change and people are frustrated with the fact that no matter who is in power in Washington, things don't change. So. I think that's going to continue to be a very attractive element out there for Donald Trump, and people are going to continue to gravitate to him, and Hillary's got her hands full. 
Well, it'll be interesting. We've got we're we're heading off to uh, Memorial Day weekend, um, and then we will we will be back and we will wrap up the primary season, and then see what happens. So um, it's an exciting time. We're gonna pivot now in our call. Howard, Mark, thank you again Thanks, as always. Um, we are gonna pivot now to talk about state AG races. But I did want to remind our listeners: number one, if you have any questions presidential or otherwise, um, you can email them in, presidentialanalysis at cozen.com. The other thing is I've mentioned um, several times on the call um, op-eds and other press commentary from Mark and Howard. Uh, you can find that at copublicstrategies.com uh, or at our law firm's homepage, cozen.com, um, and get a sense of what these guys have really been talking about all election season. So I would strongly encourage you uh, to go and read that. But we're going to set Trump and Sanders and Clinton aside and get into the states. I want to welcome uh, Bernie Nash and Lori Kalani. They co-chair uh, Cozen O'Connor's nationally recognized state AG practice. Bernie, Lori, welcome to the circus. Well, thank you very much. A pleasure to join your circus. Um, I, am, I think this is a really, really exciting topic, and I'm glad that, that we're getting to it now in the election season because as you all know well, and I want to let you sort of set the stage for us, um, attorneys general are are a dynamic political actor in the state landscape. They are also um, political players who rise to to governor, to senate, uh, to many other to many many other um, compelling offices around the country. And we've got a number of exciting races. Um, on the map today, which we'll get to. But Bernie, I want to I just take kind of a step back and, and let you set the stage for our listeners. Uh, tell me a little bit about the AG landscape today and what are you paying attention to as we look ahead to November? Well, sure, Blake. Um, looking at the landscape today, when I think it's a good, a good context to, you know, today there are 27 Democratic excuse me, Republican AGs and 23 Republican uh, Democratic AGs. i got to get my D's and my R's uh, straight. You know, in, in the 2014 election cycle, 31 AG seats, you know, were, uh, uh, were up for grabs, so to speak, and the Republicans, you know, picked up, you know, three additional seats, which they didn't have before, Arkansas and Nevada, and the uh, and Tennessee, albeit that wasn't through an election, that was through appointment by the Tennessee, uh, you know, Supreme Court. So that gave the Republicans a 27-23 uh, majority. In 2015, kind of the off-year cycle, you know, three AG seats, you know, were up: Kentucky, Louisiana, and Mississippi, and the balance stayed the same. Uh, you know, Kentucky and Mississippi stayed Democrat, Louisiana stayed Republican. Albeit, you know, the incumbent Republican, you know, lost, you know, to uh, you know, to a primary uh, challenger. Uh, so going into into this race, into this election cycle, uh, there are ten there are ten seats up, six held by uh, Democrats, uh, four held uh, by Republicans, uh, and I would say of those ten races, you know, three are competitive. And, and different dynamics are going to impact those three uh, those three uh, races. I think the other seven are pretty predictable uh, with uh, uh, the incumbents winning. And I want to come back to, to to talking about both sort of the safe seats and then the competitive seats. But Lori, I want to I want to pivot to you and you know sort of offer kind of a, a commentary. You can tell me whether you agree. It seems to me over the course of the last, I'll say decade or so, but maybe a little bit longer, there's just been a lot more political light on AGs. Um, we've seen the evolution of the Republican AGs Association and the Democratic AGs Association. Uh, Third-party interest groups are starting to take an interest sure. in AGs. I wonder from your perspective, you've been in this space and seen it, you've been through a lot of elections with a lot of AGs, sort of what's going on in the AG landscape? Why are we beginning to see so much money come into AG races? And what do you sort of, how do you sort of think about the 
the evolving raga daga landscape in terms of how it's impacting um, you know AG behavior. Sure. So uh, we saw this starting in 1999 when raga was formed, and and daga was spurred um, out of raga uh, in a few years later in 2002. Um, I, I think that there's there's a couple of factors here. One is that the perceived and, and perhaps the reality of the gridlock in Washington. Um, you know, nothing gets done in Washington. Congress doesn't do much. Right. People can't get things done, and so more is happening at the state level. And so as more as more people are focusing on the states, um, obviously more more attention is is being um, focused on the state AGs. And as more state AGs have gone on to higher office, more people are seeing that as a stepping stone and more money is pouring into those races. Um, I don't think that we've seen the end of that. I think more and more each year we're seeing the elections, um, the money that's pouring in is is increasing um, with each election. Just to give you an example, in 2012, there were 10 seats as Bernie set up for grabs. The outside spending groups spent about $8 million to influence those state AG races. That was just outside spending. In 2014, um, the Arizona AG who won the ele- who went on to win, Mark Burnovich, received $5 million in outside support for his campaign. And so, um, and, and I think the, the, the weight of the spending is about three to one with the Republicans spending a bit more. And, and as wow. I said, they started their organization a few years before DAGA. Yeah, so, so I mean, that's, that's a, that's a fairly sizable advantage. Sure. I mean, the, and, 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 you know, Bernie, I, I'm wondering if, if there, is it just that the Republicans got a head start? Um, is there something about um, the Republican Party and AGs that sort of is triggering a greater influx of money when compared to the Democrats? Any thoughts or comments there? I think it has to do with, uh, you know, policy and uh, the perception, if not the reality, of business friendly. Um, And so you have, you know, a large number uh, of large companies as well as wealthy donors who are otherwise in the political system realizing how important it is to the economy, uh, you know, to have more business friendly AGs, and I'm not saying at all that Democrats are not business friendly. A lot of this has to do with perception, and a lot of this would have to do with maybe just a handful mm-hmm. of Democrats. But perception becomes reality. So the notion of the business community and the large, wealthy Republican donors is we really now have to focus our attention and our spend on AG races so we'll have you know fewer Democratic AGs kind of unfairly. That's the vision. Uh, unfairly going after uh, business, and I think the Republicans are uh, are more focused. Uh, I don't want to say more driven. They're more focused and more disciplined uh, in terms of how they amalgamate with each other and how they, you know, attend uh, attend the meetings. And so, therefore, you get a larger turnout of those interested uh, in the Asian community. Uh, because if you go to a RAGA meeting, you find uh, a large number, if not the, if not almost, almost all uh, Republican AGs attending those meetings. And if you go to a DAGA meeting, uh, you get a poorer uh, right. turnout. So I, I think it, it can be boiled down, you know, to um, the perception of, of business-friendly. AGs. Lori, you, you you made the the I think very good and interesting point about you know light coming to AGs because of gridlock in Washington. The other thing I've noticed is that AGs are involved in some really big issues. I mean, we have seen from the national mortgage settlement to a variety of other things. I mean, AGs just some of it is you know 50 state stuff like that. Some of it is more partisan, like the Affordable Care Act. Um, but AGs are stepping out and on a much bigger political stage. Um, and I wonder, is, is, do you think there's any correlation between the, the influx of money and the engagement to the ability for an AG to take a stand on what is now a national issue? Um, and do you think a trend like that continues? I do think a trend like that continues. I think there's power in numbers. And so oftentimes, as you said, some of these issues tend to 
tend to cut more political. Certainly when there's, uh, when there's cases being brought against a particular administration, generally that, that tends to be more political. Sometimes you'll see an AG or two of the opposite party join in on those um, suits, but it, it tends to be more political. But on the consumer protection, for example, those tend to be nonpartisan. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about 50 states, like as you said, on the more, a national mortgage settlement or, or when it was tobacco several years earlier, those are very large national issues. And um, I think that emboldens the group and, and they, they, have a, they have a stage. I mean, yeah. they, there's a there's a stage and a and a and a pulpit, you know, for them to speak, and right. and I think that the couples with the money, yeah, and and the higher office going forward, right. there's right. there's the national audience. Well, and speak and act, right? I mean, these are these are these these they have enforcement powers and a variety of other things, which make I think, right, you know, that office that office particularly particularly dynamic. Um, if I could interject, Mike, I would I would add that. Uh, the Republican AGs truly believe that there's a significant amount of federal overreach, trampling on states' rights. We hear that theme uh, a lot. And, yep. and, and, and it's, less, it's less political slash partisan than one might believe. You know, they do believe in the rule of law, and even if it's, if it's messy to kind of follow through the board because very little gets done. They're not willing to tolerate, you know, federal overreach which tramples on states' rights. So you're seeing, you know, a lot of perceived, you know, partisan litigation because the Republicans were saying, hey, we believe in the rule of law, this is not constitutionally permitted, yada, 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 right. and we're suing. Strength in numbers, as Lori said, mm -hmm. if 27 sue or 25, it's a lot easier than three. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Well, and it's interesting because we certainly have seen we have seen over you know a variety of issues. We've seen it on immigration. We've seen it over over clean power. Um, you know, AGs really invoking some those states' rights issues, and and that that certainly has has I think, and I think you would agree. Certainly, in the context of this administration, we have seen um, a growth in that in that activity among among Republican AGs. So I want to pivot to the races themselves um, and talk about the landscape. Bernie, you set the stage for us um, at the beginning of, of our segment here, but I want to come back to it. Um, we've got 10 races, 10 AG races happening um, in November. I thought you might you might just just offer some general commentary about those and then we'll will drive our attention to the contested races. I'll do the easy part, and we'll let our co-chair of the practice, Lori, do the hard part. Not today. Very nimble of so you, Bernie. There, there are, indeed, ten races. Uh, of the ten, uh, five incumbents you know, are running. Three, uh, three Republicans, two Democrats. Uh, each of the incumbents will win. Uh, Montana Attorney General Tim Fox, Oregon Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum, Utah Attorney General Sean Reyes. He's, I think, running his fourth race in like two years because the special <laughs> election right. appointed by the governor, <laughs> and, and it's unbelievable. But he will win, and that then he won't have to run again for another four years. Uh, Washington Attorney General Bob uh, Ferguson, who just drew a libertarian opponent mm -hmm. uh, in his race, no Republican, uh, and West Virginia Attorney General uh, Patrick Morrissey, a a Republican. Uh, two open seats. Uh, one held by a Republican, one held by a Democrat. Uh, Indiana has an, uh, uh, Indiana ha a Republican state. Uh, um, there is a convention by which the Republican candidate will be will be picked. That hasn't uh, happened uh, yet, but my prediction is whoever that candidate will be, and I suspect who it will be, uh, will win uh, in Indiana. And then there's Vermont. Uh, which uh, T.J. Donovan is running for Bill Sorrell's seat. General Sorrell is retiring after 19 years as AG, and my prediction is that T.J. will win uh, Vermont. And I'll let Lori tell you who's going to win Missouri, North Carolina, <laughs> and Pennsylvania. That was, that was very nice of you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and I know, I, and I'll do that quickly. Um, in North Carolina, um, they've held their primary. Josh Stein is the Democrat. Um, uh, he, he's worked in the AG's office. He's been a state senator. Um, uh, 
running against him is Buck Newton, who is the current state senator and former Wilson County um, Republican chair. Um, I think that that one is 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 up in the air. Um, Josh Stein has raised a lot of money and, and was far ahead in the polls. Um, I think that, you know, given the HB2 controversy right, I was there, say, that's, I, a... that's really shaking things up. And I don't, you know, claim to know sort of all the state politics going on, but sure. I think that, you know, what's going on with the feds coming in and, and the lawsuit going on will will really affect that race. And, and the current Attorney General, General Roy Cooper, is running for the to unseat the current Governor McCrory, and obviously right. that will have, you know, the down ticket um, effect, so, uh, as will the presidential. Right, as, I was going to say, as yeah. will the presidential. So you have a nice intersection of kind of uh, all the political dynamics coming right. to play in, in, a, in a, I think, a really interesting AG's race. Yes. And I agree with Lori's prognostication. Yes, okay. So that's North, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, um, as as you and, and Mark and... and uh, Howard are all familiar with um, uh, Josh Shapiro. They held their primary on April 26th. Josh Shapiro um, is now the nominee on the Democratic side, um, current Montgomery County Commissioner and former state representative. And on the Republican side, it's John Rafferty. Um, we know them both very um, very great guys. Um, I think there, um, it's my understanding that Josh Shapiro has outraised, to, at least to date, has more money in the bank than uh, Rafferty. Um, I think there that might just come down to money and also the presidential um, race. Um, I, you know, I, I just can't tell you what's going to happen there given, given the presidential politics. Um, and then um, the last state is Missouri, who has not held their primary yet. Right, um, they hold a late primary. They hold a late primary in August. That's right, Blake. And there are two um, Democrats running. Um, that'd be. Uh, Teresa Hensley, who's a prosecutor there, and um, and then the state auditor, I believe, uh, Jake Zimmerman, and then on the Republican side, it's Josh Hawley, who's a law professor, and Kurt Schaefer, who's a state senator. A few months ago, I probably could have told you who I thought was going to win each of those primaries, <laughs> um, but I can't tell you today. I think that's you know a lot going on there as well in Missouri. So those yeah. are those are three states where I cannot tell you with any certainty who's going, to, who's going to win the election, and I don't know if Bernie disagrees with I that. I agree with that. I always agree with Lori anyway, but I will <laughs> confidently say that you're going to see tens of millions of dollars. Yes. That was going to be my question. money, the yes. Raga Daga plus independent yes. expenditure. In all three states. In all three states. That's tens right. of millions. That's right. Which will be unprecedented for AG right. down-ballot races. And, and, and Bernie, I, it's an excellent point, and, and, and I'm glad you brought it up. As we... As we look both ahead to November and the expectation of that influx of cash, but also then looking beyond, um, what are your thoughts? Are we are we going to continue to see money just continue to flow into AG's races? Um, any end in sight to the influx of capital into these races? I don't think there's an end in sight. In fact, I think that I think that the the Democrats. At DSCC and, and the, the 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 organizations in Washington, I think actually have not really those donors have not really played in the AG space, and and I think that they will at some point because I think that as as these AGs go on to higher office as they've been doing, there right. will be a, a recognition that this is a feeder system, and that and that more people will actually start to play in these races and more money will feed in. And we're seeing that obviously you all touched on that North Carolina Attorney General Roy Cooper running for governor, right. um, California right. Attorney General Kamala Harris running for the United States Senate. That's right. Um, Indiana Attorney General Greg. Zeller ran for Congress. He was unsuccessful right. in his primary. But to underscore your point, Lori, right. um, there is a there is a there is at least the perception of aspiration That's among right. among attorneys general, whether it's aspiring governor or right. or something else. And, and and Missouri Attorney General Chris Cox. That's right. I'm sorry. That's exactly right. Yep. Seven point two million dollars. That's right. His, yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. Masso, That's right. The former Attorney General of Nevada running for Harry Reid. Yeah, and it's funny, Mark. It's, mentioned it's, yeah, Mark. We had yeah. talked about that on the call right. and how and how uh, the dynamics of that race. So right. you, I mean. You've got current and former AGs aspiring to higher offices and some dynamic races that, that you all have highlighted. 
Um, you know, as we as we look ahead, um, if I can interject. You know that there are right now today there are six governors who are former AGs and and eight United States senators who are former AGs. So you know the, the aspiring governor thing. You know, it's kind of fun to say. Right. And, I'm, and everyone doesn't win, but many run and many win. Right. Right. Well, and, and I think I think you would both agree. I mean, Democrat or Republican, that office gives you a pretty extraordinary platform um, in order to both effectuate change in your state, but also to raise your profile. It's a it's a it's a it's a it's both a powerful and a potent political office. I think that's exactly right. I think you you make change without ever having to vote in your state. Right. You're, you know, you're the chief legal enforcer for the state in, enforcement officer. I think it's probably one of the most powerful positions, if not the most powerful position in the state. Um, and and I want to I want to touch on before we go, Bernie. I'm going to give you the last word. But for people that are looking for sort of state AG news, right? I wonder if you talk just a little bit about the state AG report and how they might be able to come into contact with that content. Happy to, uh, Lori and I. You know. Each week on Thursday, we try to get it out by 5 p.m. Sometimes we uh, we fail, but every Thursday we put out, you know, we call it a blog. It's called the State AG Report, you know, where we don't editorialize. We just truly act like reporters. We report the what we consider to be important news from the states where AGs have done important events, open investigations, file lawsuits, won or lost a lawsuit, signed a letter. You know, to the Congress or, or, an amicus or brief. whatever, or an amicus brief, and and so for those in our audience uh, who are interested in, in, you know, they can subscribe by sending us uh, an email, and we'd be happy to put them to the list. They'll get at least our opinion about what the important AG events were. I don't know the the blog site. You can go to the website. I don't yeah, have just go to cozen.com, yeah. right? And we can yeah. find it. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Well, look, hey, this is this has been fun. Obviously, I think I think state AG races are are worth watching for everybody on the call who who um, is certainly connected with that universe. That is not something that will surprise you coming from me. But for folks who may not may not have have been thinking about state AG races in the context of this cycle, certainly some really dynamic ones to talk about. As, as I like to do, Bernie, uh, give someone the last word. I'm going to give it to you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. That's great. Well, thanks to everyone for listening uh, to our call today. Thanks to Mark, Howard, Bernie, and Lori. Um, I appreciate it, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes today's call. We thank you all for your participation and ask that you please disconnect your lines.